Welcome to the Doggy Dojo. I'm your host, Susan Light, a Los Angeles-based dog trainer on a quest to become worthy of the title Sensei of the Doggy Dojo. Today, I want to talk about what it's like to work with a veterinary behaviorist. Not every person will need to work with one, but if you need one, they can be life-changing for you and your pet. We're going to explain what the title means, when to call one in, how to find one, and what to expect working with one. My guest is a Dr. Medvet who completed a doctorate thesis in animal behavior and is currently a third-year resident in veterinary behavior medicine through both the European and American colleges of veterinary behavior medicine. She opened her own small animal clinic the German Veterinary Clinic in Abu Dhabi in 2008. The clinic has grown from herself and two nurses to a team of over 28. It's the first ISFM gold standard cat-friendly clinic in the Middle East, and her team was the first to become fear-free certified in the Middle East. She has a regular spot on the Dubai Eye radio station as a guest speaker for all things pets and has had numerous articles published. Please welcome Dr. Katrin Jan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. I'm super excited. Um, there's a lot of cases when I'm always recommending bringing in uh, a behavior professional. Do you mind explaining a little bit of an overview for people that maybe are not familiar, the difference between um, the different titles that might be on a team helping an animal through a behavior issue? So like a trainer, a behavior consultant, a, what's a behaviorist, what's a regular vet, what's a vet behaviorist? Yeah, that's a great question. And it sometimes it gets quite confusing. Um, and I think one of the things that, that is sort of a really big topic, especially in the behavior field, is that it's not necessarily regulated. So somebody can call themselves a behavior consultant or mm-hmm. a behaviorist, even if they've only done sort of a weekend course in something and have gotten, you know, a, a piece of paper or a document. So I think it's always really important for people to kind of do their research But to answer your question, so a trainer um, usually would work mainly with learning theory. So, um, you know, the hopefully only the positive reinforcement quadrant of the four quadrants that we have in operant conditioning, um, as well as classical conditioning and desensitization, those types of things. So that's kind of the realm, I guess, of a trainer. And that's really to teach mainly, I guess, operant behaviors first and foremost, Um, A behaviorist or a behavior consultant would perhaps work more with problem behaviors. So where people are experiencing a problem that they would like to have addressed and they might look at it from perhaps the the animal's emotional point of view through that sort of emotion lens. Um, So I guess that's where a behaviorist or a behavior consultant comes in. And then a a veterinarian um, takes care mainly, I guess, of your pet's physical health. Um, and a veterinary behaviorist really looks at both the physical and the mental and emotional um, health of the pets. So a veterinary behaviorist has had exactly the same training as a vet, so has gone to vet school for a number of years um, and has then decided to specialize in behavior. So that usually means doing an internship um, and then a residency, which is what I'm doing now, to, in order to specialize in that field. And that's then when you get your veterinary behaviorist. So a veterinary behaviorist really should be board certified. Otherwise, they shouldn't have the ist on the end of their name. Um, 
and you know, and that is regulated, I think, in most places. That's correct. Maybe maybe the only title here that is that does have a requirement. Yeah, that's correct. And I think most veterinary behaviorists are also quite um, protective of that title because they should be. Exactly. So much work has gone into that. So you can't really call yourself a behaviorist unless you're boarded. You could call yourself a vet with special interest in behavior, or you can have in the US vets with practice restricted solely to behavior. So they do nothing else but behavior. But that doesn't mean that they've gone through a residency and they've become board certified. Yeah, I went through this when I spoke to the um, board certified canine dentist or sorry, veterinary mm-hmm. dentist. That was an, I, he's like, there's no such thing as a certified canine dentist, a veterinary <laughs> dentist. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's fewer than 200 board certified veterinary dentists. Um, he's like, that doesn't mean that there aren't veterinarians that just decide to only do dentistry and basically, you know what I mean? But they just haven't gone through all the schooling, paperwork and whatever. So I think it's great to sort of, and you have a great perspective on it. If you're just talking about a vet who's not, doesn't have a special interest in behavior, how much experience with behavior do they have? Yeah. So not a lot. And that's a little bit where I think the gap comes in or where, you know, we see a bit of a divide. So in most colleges, certainly I think in the US, in Europe as well, in the UK, I know for sure, um, vets don't get a lot of training in behavior at vet school. So they come out of vet school not knowing a lot about behavior, let alone things like psychopharmaceuticals or learning theory um, or, you know, the, the sort of the physiological aspects, I guess, of behavior. Um, That's something that most veterinarians wouldn't know that much about. I think it's getting better. um, And certainly we're starting to tackle that more at vet school level. We're actually starting to teach vet students more about that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, which is great. And that's very much needed. But I do know that many of my colleagues don't feel comfortable, don't have the time perhaps, and don't maybe have sort of the the understanding of how to put it all together with the physical side when it comes to, to behavior. Yeah, because I think that's something that's important for people to understand that we ask so much of vets. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm at all looking down on a, on a quote unquote, just a vet, because to understand what that is, they have to know so much about a ton of species, right? right. So yeah. I feel like they ask them to know a little bit about a very broad spectrum um, which makes it difficult if if they don't then in practice specialize uh, and sort of hone in and learn more and more and more. Uh, it's just they can't exhaustively cover absolutely everything that will come up with every species in veterinary school. It's impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, both in every species. So, yeah, we do, you know, exotics and farm animals and equine and small animals. And there's a difference between dogs and cats, as we well know. Mm -hmm. So there is all that sort of species divide, but then also all of the different areas. So if you think about ophthalmology, dermatology, cardiology, neurology, emergency medicine, general practice work, you know, there are so many different sectors within even just one species, um, that it starts to become really difficult to to know many things very well. Um, yeah. And you're right, you know, I think, yes, there are such great demands placed on vets, and it's impossible to meet all those demands sometimes. It's kind of crazy. Like, the more that I've learned about it, it's it's a little bit mind-blowing what we ask of them. 
Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. But uh, thank you to all the vets. <laughs> we really <laughs> appreciate you going through that. Uh, so be nice to your vet and your veterinary staff. Okay. Because yes, please, honestly, please <laughs> uh, we need, everybody needs a little kindness and, and they're going through a rough patch right now for sure. Um, but so that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. Uh, so now we know what a vet behaviorist is. Do you have guidelines or sort of a mental checklist for when you should get one involved? Like, are there things that you think immediately, okay, you need to have a vet behaviorist involved? Or is it more of like a ladder uh, where it's like, let's let's try this first. Let's start with a trainer. Okay, then let's bring it up to a behavior consultant. Um, how do you tell people to approach that? So I actually think it should be the other way around. So the the vet, maybe not the veterinary behaviorist, but certainly perhaps the vet with a, an interest in behavior or a vet in general should really be the first port of call because we know that there are so many physiological diseases um, and presentations that contribute to behavior. So if we think about pain, if we think about um endocrinology so let's say a diabetic cat you know that's perhaps urinating more and then that also all of a sudden starts urinating outside of the litter box well if you went to a trainer or a behavior consultant first you might miss that really important aspect which is actually the cat is you know producing so much more urine because it's diabetic that's why it's urinating outside of the litter box yeah um, and sometimes i think people um, can spend a lot of time and a lot of money, um, you know, perhaps going down other avenues first. Um, and then they get very sort of frustrated and despondent when things don't work. And they might not work because the animal has a physiologic underlying problem that needs to be addressed first. Amen. So, yeah, I, I always say your your vet or your vet behaviorist or your vet with a special interest in behavior should be your first port of call. And they should then get involved um, the trainers and the behavior consultants that can perhaps do the more sort of day-to-day hand-holding of the clients through specific things um, or, you know, that the, the vet behaviorist sets the treatment plan and then brings in all these other wonderful specialists, whether that's, you know, a fantastic trainer or a physiotherapist, a rehab specialist to work on pain issues, um, for example. So, you know, there's a, a could be a whole host of other professionals that then come on board. And that makes more sense to me because I've seen so many clients frustrated and, you know, they'll, they'll send, say in their questionnaires to me, um, you're our last resort, you're our mm. last hope. Yeah. And when I read that, my heart just sinks because I think, oh, yeah, because by the time now that they've gotten to me, they've spent so much money, they've spent so much energy, they're so probably despondent and frustrated, and the animal hasn't received the help that perhaps it's it's needed. So yeah. I would encourage people to try and think the other way around, you know, think of um, a vet or a vet behaviorist first, and then, you know, let us bring in all the other amazing um, specialists in their field, the trainers and the rehab people to support, you know, that sort of treatment plan. Yeah. And I do want to point out, so any ethical Lima based trainer, and I, you know, I have my issues with Lima because of course it ends with positive punishment and I wish they yep. would change that. But, uh, you know, the, the first thing you want to do is address the physical, you know, needs of the pet. And that includes a health check. So, um, any good trainer that you're coming to with a behavior issue 
will say, have you gone to the vet? Right. Yeah. We'll send you to your vet first. But I really want to point out to people that just like we said, vets have like a million things going on. They're also not mind readers. So when we say, have you gone to the vet? This is not, oh yeah, I just had them in for their rabies shot and they didn't say anything. Yeah. It, I just had them in for their yearly and they didn't say anything. You need to make that appointment and tell the vet the behavior that's concerning you so they know what tests to run and what to look for because they the cat can't talk to them. The dog cannot talk to them. And behavior has a function. So you need to be giving the vet that information about specifically the behavior and then they can run those tests and then you could, you know, tell the next professional, yeah. They said there's no, you know, they ruled out this and that, and they said there's there's not a medical issue. That's what we're looking for. Um, because like you said, it's a medical issue a lot of times because behavior has a function. Yeah. It's not absolutely. coming out of nowhere. Yeah. And just as a little tip there, so vets love data. Um, so if you can go to your vet um, and let them know that the be the behavior that's concerning you, if you can give them something like, my dog is defecating six times a day, your vet mm. will know that that's not normal and that that is a behavior that you're concerned with and, you know, that they should also be concerned with. Or, you know, something like, my dog used to always be able to jump into the car. He now can no longer jump into the car. That's a great one. Um, right. My cat. Or doesn't want to sit. Yes. That's the one I see a lot. Yeah. 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 Doesn't want to sit or sits awkwardly or then yep. kind of struggles a little bit to get back up again. Yeah. Or, you know, the cat who no longer accesses the favorite hiding spot, you know, up on a cat tree or something like that. So I think the more specific you can be and the more data driven your information to your vet can be, um, the better your vet is going to be able to understand and, you know, decide the appropriate action depending on, on what you've told them. Yeah. So are there any uh, things that you think, you know, go, you, you're definitely going to need to see a vet behaviorist uh, specifically, like uh, severity of an issue or like, are there any guidelines where it's just like jump straight to the vet behaviorist, um, even over the regular vet? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, you know, some of the sort of, I guess, classic behavior presentations such as separation distress or, mm. you know, separation anxiety. I know it's not always anxiety, but that sort of panic um, yep. when left alone. Um, true sort of fear, um, anxiety uh, type behaviors and, and aggressive behaviors as well. I think they, mm -hmm. they are definitely behaviors that would benefit seeing um, a veterinary behaviorist and compulsive behaviors because even if we do find something um, physiological there even if let's say we have a noise phobic dog that has pain we probably still need to address the noise phobia via a vet behaviorist okay. so I think some of your classical presentations the other thing is if somebody's been working with a trainer for a long long time and they're just not making any progress they've either you know hit that glass ceiling or they've hit a brick wall we often call it and you know they're doing all the right things and you know they're, they're doing you know good positive reinforcement based training however it's not helping the issue you know that the, the dog or the cat is still showing the the emotional um side i guess of the behavioral context then that would be another time i think to go straight to a veterinary behaviorist um and anywhere where there's potentially a crossover between 
something physiological and a learning from that physiological thing. So let's say we've got a compulsive behavior that maybe started as um, something physiological. So let's say you've got a cat with fleas that starts over grooming um, and then learns that the grooming behavior actually makes them feel better and gives them some kind of internal relief. And then we treat the fleas and that's all gone, but the cat may still um, perform the behavior because it's learned that that behavior is highly motivating um, and highly uh, functional, as you said. And you need to then address, you know, that learning. How can we then break down that learned behavior? Um, and how can we make sure or how can we sort of disassociate the physiological from the learned behavior? We're going to take a quick break, but you can find Katrin and access the many free resources she provides online at www.trinityvetbehavior.com, Instagram at Trinity Vet Behavior, or Facebook, just search Trinity Veterinary Behavior. She also has a Facebook group called the Pet Behavior Community, and I've linked them all in the show notes for you. We'll be right back. Uh, do you have any advice on how people can get in to see one in a timely <laughs> manner? I don't know about in Europe where you're mostly working, but in, in the States, the only vet behaviorist I like to refer, her wait list is crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And months, it's a, months and months. Yeah. yeah. I know. And it's a big problem. And that's solely because there just aren't enough of us around yeah. at the moment. Um, I think you mentioned about the veterinary dentists, you know, having sort of 200 boarded members with veterinary behaviorists, it's even less. So I think in-, in Really? Oh, I yeah. would have thought it would be more. No. So I think in the US, we've probably, we're looking at about maybe 100, 130. Holy smokes, no wonder. Yeah. And in, in Europe, even less, you're going to um, be shocked at this number. So in Europe, we probably only have about 30 to 40 boarded- oh. My God, I know, I know. So that's, that's the biggest, um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That That's the biggest problem. Um, what I do think is happening a lot now, I think, you know, through sort of the last couple of years, um, many of us, and in the U S I think it depends a little bit, which state you're in, but many of us are able to offer virtual consultations, um, or we're able to offer vet to vet consultations, which are much shorter. So where we offer case support and case advice to um, general practice veterinarians that might have a behavior case that walks into their practice, and they're not quite sure how to approach it, or perhaps what medication to use. Um, so that those are good options. I know that quite a few veterinary behaviorists are using that. So it might be worth mentioning to your GP vet, you know, can you have a look and see if you can find a veterinary behaviorist that offers vet to vet consults? Mm. And then I know that many veterinary behaviorists are um, making available more and more resources on their websites. So on my website, for example, I have a whole page that's dedicated just to free resources, which are mainly PDF sheets that explain a little bit more about certain things. There are a few sort of tracking and logging charts on there. There's something about toilet training, which I know is quite basic, but it you know comes up time and time again. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, there are more sort of digital resources available. But yeah, of course, in, in many instances, um, you know, you need to see a veterinary behaviorist or a vet who 
is interested in behavior. And so that number that I mentioned, sort of the 100, 130, those are the boarded um, veterinary behaviorists. Now, there are probably another 100 or 130 of us residents. And depending on which which year we're in, so a residency usually lasts for for three years. But with behavior, um, sometimes the residencies go a little bit longer just because there's such a huge amount to cover. Um, so, So I'm in my third year. I've seen almost 350 cases, which gives me a really good sort of case experience. Um, And most of us residents will have that number of cases under our belts, um, you know, there or thereabouts. So, you know, asking for residents um, and often we'll be working with the the boarded veterinary behaviorists. They'll be our mentors, you know, so asking them, hey, if you're not available, have you got a resident that's maybe available and seeing cases? Great idea. That's another good way. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So let's say that you're on a wait list to see you or you have your appointment, but it's several months down the road. Mm-hmm. What should the pet parent do in the meantime? I mean, they can avail themselves to your free resources or possibly other free resources. Do be careful where you're getting information on the internet, though, people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I love that you are an amazing source. So if you're offering free resources, I'm definitely going to uh, put all of your links in the show notes so people can find you. Um, but do you have any other advice what they should do in the meantime? Should they start working with the trainer? Because uh, I've, I've worked with a couple of, of cases that, you know, I'm like, you definitely need a behaviorist. They're like, yeah, my appointment's in six months. Yeah. You know, do you think that that's worthwhile working in the meantime on anything? Yeah. So I think definitely what can be done in the meantime is what, what we refer to as behavioral first aid. Um, and mm. sometimes you can even ask for a first aid appointment, which is really where, um, you know, a behaviorist might give you a shorter appointment, maybe just a half hour or an hour appointment where they go through with you the, the real sort of first aid things, which is often to do with safety management. Um, a lot of times, you know, we'll tell you, you know, stop doing things, stop exposure mm. to triggers, yeah. um, you, you know, just to try and get that animal's brain to start settling down and to prevent those um, neurological pathways strengthening through practicing unwanted behaviors. So some of those first aid strategies, I think would be really useful. And I think that's where a really good trainer can also come in. So if you as a trainer have a really good relationship, perhaps with a vet or a vet behaviorist, um, then, you know, speak to them and see what what might be those first aid strategies that you can already start coaching the client in. Um, And then in the meantime, also get a full physical exam done. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, have a look at, I always say pain, so musculoskeletal, gastrointestinal, skin, um, and sometimes neurological. Those, Those would be sort of definitely the first places to look. You know, find out is the dog having diarrhea, loose stools, vomiting regularly? Are they itchy? Um, Often those things are so closely related to anxiety, fear, um, but it's really good to get those things already checked out and perhaps ruled in or out before seeing the veterinary behaviorist. Yeah, I know that the data is not good, but I've heard some studies pointing to upwards of 80% of behavior cases presenting some kind of pain. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't believe that that's like a huge study that that came from, um, but it's mind blowing, um, that, you know, and it makes sense. We're all in pain at a certain point in time. So our pets might as well. Would you ever recommend possibly through the vet, clearly not just self-medicating your, your animal going through possibly a pain trial or trying, I know vets can't recommend CBD, 
here. Um, you know, would would you try any pain mitigation things through your vet first? Yeah, so a pain trial is not a bad idea, especially if the vet perhaps suspects. So pain is difficult to diagnose because, yes. you know, the, the pet doesn't have to be limping or yelping in order to be yeah. in pain. Um, and chronic pain is can be quite difficult to detect. So, yeah, a pain trial, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't be recommending CBD at this point in okay. time just because we haven't got enough data I always say CBD could be the next best thing. We don't know, but we just don't have enough data to um, verify that. Um, and the study that you mentioned um, just then about the 80% of dogs um, mm -hmm. in pain. So it's not a huge study, but it's an extremely good study. So it's actually a multi-center mm -hmm. study that comes from a number of veterinary behaviorists. It was actually, the study was called to life at our Washington conference in 2019, where Daniel Mills, who's a famous veterinary behaviorist here in the UK, actually asked the room, hey, who's seeing pain, um, you know, as a, a sort of a chief presenting complaint? And almost the whole room put their hands up. And mm. so it, it was a collaboration of many veterinary behaviorists and the cases that they saw. So it's a good study. Um, and actually, just recently, I think last month, um, another really good study came out um, looking at the link between atopic dermatitis, so allergic skin disease, and um, fear, anxiety, and aggressive behaviors. Um, mm. So I think there's more and more coming out, um, just demonstrating that very strong sort of link to physiology. So absolutely, you know, a pain trial or, um, you know, a trial with an an anti-allergy medication, perhaps if the dog is itchy. So, you know, all those things can be done in the run-up to or whilst people are waiting for their appointments with the veterinary behaviorist. Oh, so, so much good information. Thank you. Uh, so we're almost out of time, but I don't know if we can address, like, again, so let's say you've got your appointment on the books. What should people expect when they work with a veter veterinary behaviorist and how can they best prepare for the initial visit? I mean, you already mentioned data, gathering mm -hmm. data, you know, trying to rule as many things out with uh, your regular vet or getting all those tests done. Anything else that you recommend? Um, and just a little bit about the expectation, because like you said, it's probably not going to be the vet behaviorist. You guys are so limited and so busy walking you through the treatment uh, step by step. It's going to be, you know, how, how does it usually work? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, every veterinary behaviorist is, is going to send you a questionnaire and those questionnaires are usually quite lengthy. So fill the questionnaire in in as much detail as you can, because it's going to really help us to prepare for your appointment as well as we can. Um, sending in videos. Now, never, ever send a video of or never create a situation. Um, yes, just know, to get it on video. Exactly. Just to get the video. Yep. Um, yeah. But but even things like, you know, everyday interactions, um, you know, how is your dog with other dogs that might be in the household? How is the dog with people? How are they around strangers or visitors coming into the home? Um, you know, really good to get p uh, videos of them walking up and down stairs um, and, you know, perhaps jumping into the car just so that we can already see a little bit that sort of um, mobility, you know, if there are potentially any pain issues or mobility issues. So preparation is the first thing. The, the consultation itself usually lasts for around two hours, depending on, on who you see. One of my mentors, her, her consultations are three hours. Wow. Um, yeah, I tend to find between an hour and a half and two hours is usually the limit of what most people can actually take in and, and how well the dogs cope. 
um, mm. if they're coming into the clinic, if it's not a virtual consult. And then what should happen is really sort of a discussion of the history of specific events, um, really kind of going through the behavioral issues in detail. And then at the end of the consultation, you should come away with a diagnosis or diagnoses. There are usually more than one um, and a treatment plan. And the treatment plan is going to be multifactorial. It's going to be tailored to the individual patient and it may include um, you know, those other specialists. So it may include a behavior modification piece, which is where the trainer comes in, or it may include, you know, seeing a pain specialist or a, a rehab or a physiotherapist. Um, and it it may um, also include um, behavior medications, psychopharmaceuticals, or diets, pheromones, supplements. Um, and it's going to include a lot of management. So how are you actually going to manage this animal going forwards? And sometimes we also need to have the challenging conversations, right? You know, mm. is, is it, you know, are we going to go forward with this, um, with this Ooh, pet or not? Wow. Yeah. So yeah. those things come in there as well. So they're extremely comprehensive. And, and I think it's really important for us to have those difficult conversations um, because, mm. you know, it affects everyone's quality of life, the, the animal, the people, and we want to yeah. make sure that we can improve that quality of life and that welfare as best as we can. Mm. Um, and not to not to put a downer on it, I would right. say, you know, 99% of, of my patients go away with a treatment plan and we see, you yeah. know, really great outcomes. But there will be the odd case um, mm. that may not have sure. such a nice outcome. And how much follow-up do you usually end up doing with a, a vet behaviorist? Is this something where you're checking back in every six months or a year, or you go out with this very comprehensive plan and working with the other professionals, and then is that sort of how, how far it goes with them? Oh, no, we do very frequent follow-up. So once you're okay. in, you're in. <laughs> Certainly with me. <laughs> Certainly with me. You know, once once I've seen you, and especially if I have you on psychopharmaceutical medication, mm. I want mm. to know. So I, if, if a patient of mine does go away with medication, I check in with them every 24 to 48 hours in the first two weeks um, because I want to know how things are going, if there are any problems, if they're experiencing side effects, if there's something that we need to change. Um, I want to know how the management strategies are going, whether they're even achievable for the clients. Um, you know, if we need to tweak something, um, I get my clients and patients to send in weekly diaries. So they, they'll send in a weekly diary to me. Um, just, you, you know, I'll, I'll give them certain behaviors perhaps to count or track to see whether we're making progress. And then I'll do a proper follow-up appointment, usually about six weeks after the initial consultation, um, and that's usually 45 minutes to an hour, um, and that's when we might adjust medication doses or then go sort of to the next phase of the treatment, if you like. So, like, yeah, like I said, I think once you're on the books, you get pretty good yeah. um, support. Which is probably why it's even harder to get the new people in. Right. Because, you know, yeah, that, it makes total sense. Um, I just want to point one thing out. We're, we're totally out of time, but I want to point one thing out and I can't resist asking one more question. We'll see if it makes it in the cut. But um, I just want to point out that you, a very educated, going through your residency, PhD uh, in behavior thesis or thesis in behavior. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but um, you are recommending only positive reinforcement and then 
you know, possibly medical interventions, you're not going up that, as we said, Lima scale and saying, oh, you know what, we're going to save this dog by throwing a shock collar on them, uh, which is the things that quote unquote balance trainers would have you believe they're doing that they're quote unquote saving dogs by shocking them. Uh, so I just want to point that out. I pointed out to many people that the more education you have, the far less likely you are to use aversive training methods. And there must be a reason yeah, for no, that. Absolutely. I mean, if you're thinking about that Lima scale, um, we hardly ever have to get past the first, you know, one or two stops on that scale. So it's really about um, the physiology um, and then the management um, yeah, and, and their positive reinforcement. And that's as far as it goes. Uh, there's absolutely no need for um, for any kind of aversives, let alone shock collars. Um, yeah, I, I get so many people that say to me, um, you know, shock collars are so great for, for the dogs that have high predatory drive, you know, that, that chase and, and then get shocked because they're chasing. Um, and I just find that such a, I, I find that so difficult to sort of get my head around because, surely you would manage the situation. You would use that point right on the bottom of the scale, which is about management, where you don't put that dog into that position. Um, yep. I know life isn't always perfect. And I do know that, you know, things happen. But I'm sure that there are other ways around that, you know, a really strong recall, um, management, you know, long lines, so many other things that 100% negate uh, the need to use an electric shock collar. There's just no need for it. Amen. And then the one question I'll ask if we can squeeze it in is um, a lot of people, the other thing about the long waits is uh, veterinary behaviorist appointments tend to be very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, something that not everybody can afford. I, it's, and it's the same with vet care. People, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes hesitate when I say, go, go to the vet, tell them about this, get some tests run, rule some things out because that's also expensive. And I'm a big proponent of pet insurance for that reason, because I want you to be able to take your vet, uh, to take your pet to the vet and get them care and get, you know, I don't want you to have to worry about that. Do you know, and maybe you can't even answer because different countries, different things, are there insurance, pet insurance that cover vet behavior services if you need it? Yeah. So in the UK, absolutely. So Pet Plan, for example, which is a really big pet insurance company here in the UK, they do cover um, veterinary behavior. Um, I think there is a, a cap on it. I think it's up to a thousand pounds sterling or it might be slightly more even. So um, there might be sort of a, a limit as to how much they cover, but it will certainly get, get you the initial consultation and, um, you know, follow up treatment. So it'll at least get you started down the right track. I have no idea how it is in the US. I can only speak for the UK um, because yeah. I'm familiar with this market. But yeah, absolutely, they, they do. And I think the more behavior starts getting recognized as a true um, area of vet veterinary medicine you know this is an important part you know mental and emotional health I think Absolutely. the more, more that that becomes mainstream the more the pet insurances are going to jump on board and, and cover those um, those things too Thank you, Dr. Jan, for joining me today. My biggest takeaways from this conversation are to make sure you're starting any behavior modification journey with your vet. Give them as much data as you can and rule out any possible medical issue. Also make sure any professional on your team is using positive reinforcement methods as aversive techniques are not only completely unnecessary, but potentially damaging to your pet. 
And don't wait until this is the last resort to seek one out. The earlier you seek professional help, the better. Thank you for stopping by the dojo to learn with me this week. This is your aspiring sensei, Susan Light, signing off. You can find me at www.doggydojopodcast.com or I'm Susan Light LA on Instagram, Pinterest, and Facebook. The music was written by Mac Light. You can find him at www.maclightsongwriter.com. If you like the show, you can support it by subscribing, sharing it with your friends, rating it, and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. I'll be back in two weeks with another new episode of the Doggy Dojo.